Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, April 17th. It's Easter, it's Passover. Yeah. Uh, spring is sprung. <laughs> sort of. It's kind of chilly today, but yes. Isn't it also a... Ramadan? I, I'm, you know, I'm. it's enough I know Passover, okay? That's the only one I'm speaking to. All right. I'm on to that one. Mm-hmm. I, I Excellent understand Seder. it's Easter. Excellent Seder. Yes, that's right. Uh, Hazi really was not up on the four questions. Oh, he was sleeping. Yeah. Hazi goes to sleep too early for a Seder. I, I think that was uh, planned on his part to get know. out of it. Listen, I don't expect him to do it in Hebrew, but if he, you know, they have phonetic uh, presentations that he could have faked the Hebrew. But uh, apparently he's speaking no language at all right now, so uh, we'll give him a pass. He's, uh, what is he, 10 months old? At least. Yeah. Maybe 11. Nah, 10-something. He's 10 and something. He's you know, he was born in May. Seriously, you don't do the four questions uh, until you're like six or seven, unless you're an Abuhop child at the age of four, I think. But uh, 10 months now. 10 months now. Listen, he's got a lot of questions, but those are not his questions. I'll tell that's, you right that's now. That's true. Yeah. I see it in his eyes. Yes. That's, you got to see it in his eyes. He's not saying what they are. All right. So we have a lot going on, and we're still taking time to watch Julia. Julia, the television series. On uh, HBO Max. On HBO Max about Julia Child. Right. Which uh, we enjoy. I enjoy it. You're enjoying it. Yeah, and you yeah, enjoy I, it. I'm enjoying it too, actually. Um, and it has a lot of heavy hitters in terms yeah. of stars, right? Yeah, it has, uh, well, the, the people we know were David Hyde Pierce as her husband and B.B. Newworth as her best friend. But the w- woman who's playing Julia, not familiar to me, uh, Sarah Lancashire, uh, who's convincing to me. I think she's good. What do you well, think? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I... Yeah, yeah, she seems fine. Yeah. And and all kinds of people pop in. Yes. Judith Licht and... Uh, and who else? I don't know. Nobody now, else. Now you've got me stumped. Nobody else. Yeah, other people are popping in. All right, well, yeah. whatever. It, no, it, it's, uh, it's a nice period piece, that period being uh, late 50s, early 60s, I guess. Yeah. Uh, taking place very much in Boston, WGBH, their uh, PBS um, affiliate up there. And the development of her cooking show, that's what it's about. And very much about the de- development of public television at the time. That's true. But, you know, there are two things going. First of all, I do enjoy it. It's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. Uh, you kind of see it a little differently because you know a lot. You're going you're gonna to protest. But you've read two books about Julia Child. So you are sitting there watching it and enjoying it in part. In part saying, ah, that's not exactly right. That's not exactly right. Okay. Well... Let's get this straight. I okay. read those books right. 20 years ago. Yes. Okay. And uh, uh, this is the thing. I like food writing. Yeah. So I, I went through a phase where I was reading a lot of MFK Fisher. Right. All right. Great food writer. And I came across a book that by Joan Reardon yeah. that uh, covered three, three great uh, food people. MFK Fisher, Julia Child, Alice, Alice Waters. Right. Okay, of Chez Panisse. And the name right? of the book is? The name of the book is Celebrating the Pleasures of the Table. So I don't even know if you can still get it. it you know, sure. It was from like you can get 1994. Yeah. And um, I read it because uh, I, 
I knew about Alice Waters, of course. I, I knew about Julia. I was never a big Julia fan. Never interested in French food, mm-hmm. and never saw the shows. I was oh, just so we're clear. The shows, or what was it called, the French Chef? The French Chef, which was well, her she, had PBS many, show. she had many different shows, but, but that was the, the one the that really one people the first about. one that yeah. people went crazy about. Um, was in the 60s, and uh, I was not watching cookie shows. But, uh, you know, one thing that you brought me up on, I mean, as we're watching the show, it's about the development of the show and the reluctance of uh, public television in Boston to put it on. They just doubted it would have any appeal. And you told me it was a tremendously popular and successful show. Right, right. And I know that. because. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you know that anyway because of all the, um, you know, uh, comedic imitations of... Julia on uh, yes, all on TV. over the place. Yeah, 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 imitations of her voice and so on and so forth. So she was an icon. She was a character right. that everyone would know of, whether right. he's ever seen the show or not. And um, but anyway, I uh, never was had interested. Never really interested. French food is all about technique, mm-hmm. and you know that's hard work, really. <laughs> and very to me, it just seemed too fussy. Okay. So I, you know, I'll eat French food anytime, but you know, I was not uh, any kind of a fanatic or expert or anything like that. But I read this book about these three women, and I was quite charmed by Julia Child. Turns out she is was quite interesting. There was a lot to her, mm-hmm. a lot of a- aspects of her that I don't think this show even covers. Um, she, you know, one of the things that made her books great was she was just a fanatic about you know, the recipes being precise, exact, and you follow them and you will get the result. Mm -hmm. And she tested and tested and tested and vetted and vetted and vetted in a way that uh, wasn't really done uh, on... still not done. Yeah, Yeah. still not done. Right. It's not a common thing. So her cookbook was, uh, you know, um, a huge departure and uh, very influential uh, so there's that, but it's really her show that made her a star. And on the show, she seems like somewhat of a buffoon. And she will be the first one to say, I did this because I'm a ham, mm-hmm. right? She loved to perform. She understood she was performing. But but as a person, she was, you know, just multifaceted in a very, uh, you know, interesting well, way. She and her husband, when they were making the show, they yeah. happened to be living in uh, Cambridge, yeah. they were hanging out with, you know, yeah. the Cambridge crowd, the professors, uh, editors, you know, intellectuals, yeah. writers, etc. Um, so, you know, that interested me, that uh, she had all these different sides. Not only did she have that intellectual side, uh, she did terrible at college. She got C's at Smith. At Smith okay. right. She came from, you know, a wealthy family. Um, she was born in 1912, mm-hmm. okay? Her mother went to Smith. Her mother was a basketball star mm-hmm. at Smith, right. okay? So that had to be, you know, uh, in the early 19-aughts. So there's there's the physical know. thing. So because her and mother, she was six feet two. Well, she was six feet two, filling, filling yeah. in with the basketball. And her sister was even taller, you showed yes, me. Yes, yeah. But uh, also, one of the things you pointed out, you said buffoon, part of it is they make her seem terribly, terribly awkward physically. And you've told Frumpy, me... Frumpy, and dowdy. And you say that's not the case. No, if you look at the pictures of her, I mean, she she, she was attractive, not in a movie star way, mm-hmm. but she was not this frump mm-hmm. uh, that you see 
on the TV. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so so there were many different layers to her. She was, she was a good um, business person in terms of managing her career mm-hmm. and, uh, and then the romance of her... Uh, marriage with Paul Childs right. was a wonderful story. She met him while she was actually working in the Foreign Service. She's abroad. She met him, I don't know, India, China. And he somewhere. was in the Foreign Service. Yeah, they were both in the Foreign Service. He is older. He's just coming off of, you know, an... Devastating an, loss of his... his a a of his great girl. love affair. Right. Um, with an older woman, a much older woman, um, Edith Kennedy, and uh, a petite, dark sophisticated woman and here is big um, clumsy i mean she's she's athletic but she is kind of awkward in some ways um julia who knows nothing about food really nothing and um somehow they click she learns about uh food and the cosmopolitan world from paul and uh, they you know they collaborate on her career Years later, when he's uh... well, something about it clicked. I mean, it's quite persuasive that she was a huge success, you know, a huge following among these people. Uh, it started again in the Cambridge, Boston area, and it doesn't automatically go to all PBS affiliates, but they actually came up, according to the TV series, at that point in time with the idea of licensing out to other affiliates, and it became nationwide. Right. So maybe that was a huge step. Then why don't you give the name of the other book? Yeah, well, the 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 biography. If you really want to know a lot about her and see some great photographs, is Appetite for Life: mm-hmm. The Biography of Julia Child by Noel Riley Fitch. Okay. okay, Appetite for Life. Well, some of your information clearly comes from that book, uh, and a lot of the information in the you can see that uh, in in the show. Yeah, uh, there are many details that uh, you know. Probably from the book as well. I'm not yeah. sure. You know, they were doing a lot of their own original research. Mm-hmm. But um, and I would just uh, just to give this one little anecdote. Um, I remember my parents and their friends talking about the show, uh-huh. and uh, their friends. Uh, my parents were talking with their friends, the Nelsons, yeah. Arnie and Henrietta. And Arnie was saying, you know, Henrietta started watching this show, and have you seen it? He says it's just you know she's. Uh, uh, amazing, hilarious. Uh, he, you know, he, he um, you know, uh, went on about her a little bit, and then he said, "And Henrietta has made one of the dishes uh, from the show for dinner, and it was incredible. It was delicious." Yeah. And we just, I just laughed. We were watching the TV show because the head of the WBGH. Mm-hmm. Um, tells exactly the same story. Right. Well, His wife is watching it. She makes the dinner, right. and he is wowed and that's by why, the food. And that's why he commissions the show. According to the TV show. Right, he watches the pilot, uh, and his wife makes right. it. So, you know, this was just a common a common cultural icon, but she really was, uh, she's an, she was an interesting, well, interesting person. Two, I mean, we have to move on, but there are two, two reasons why it was such a market departure. One is, she's making this, fairly sophisticated French food, which is new to a lot of people. It's like totally foreign. On the one hand, on the other hand, at least the way the show depicts things, people are making very unsophisticated food or so-called modern food. So every time the, the show shows someone at home and their wife's making dinner, it's like a casserole with potato chips on the top. 
Uh, or, or pulling out a TV dinner. Yeah, pulling out a TV well, dinner. Yeah, I mean, that was the whole thing. It, maybe so it was all about convenience a case, and but, modern food. We all yeah. wanted to be Jetsons. We were eating the frozen So it's night and day. Yes. It's not yes. like they're saying, gee, you know, the, the food's been a little dry, this is a little better. It wasn't that at all. It was completely different. It was a huge departure if you were making Julia Child's food. Yeah. Uh, all right. So speaking of a huge departure. We could go on about we, this we could for a on. long time. Maybe we will. But uh, a <laughs> uh, huge departure. Uh, so marijuana is now legal in New Jersey, or it will be, and it will be sold for recreational purposes beginning next week. Now, I had to read the article in the Times three times to try to figure this out, but I think I've got it. What they're saying is right now that there are, there are medical marijuana dispensaries already in New Jersey. When they go to the idea of having recreational use as well as medical marijuana, that means that these dispensaries, as, long, as well as some other places, will be selling marijuana to anybody who, who's an adult. You don't have to show any medical necessity. But they are really anticipating a huge demand for this. Uh, they're talking about crowd control. They're talking about measures to make sure that the people who need it for medical purposes have enough supply because they anticipate that recreational users are going to buy out the stock right away. I mean, they're girding themselves for this huge demand. Uh, and maybe that's going to happen. I don't know. I, I think Do we'll just I pay attention. smell another retirement? Well, the word smell uh, is a good business word. Business idea? Uh, Coming from you? Well, I'll tell you what. You know the Are you ready idea? to invest? Let me tell you who's going to make money, the towns. Because the way it works is that, uh, and of course the state's taking its share, uh, the state is taxing all these sales. Um, but uh, then a, each town in New Jersey, including Cranberry actually, had the opportunity to say, we're going to sell marijuana or we're not going to, mm-hmm. which became for some towns a moral issue, I suppose. Uh, and if a town uh, opts to sell, they are allowed to charge an extra 2% tax in addition to the state tax that goes directly to them. So, for example, Elizabeth was one of the first ones to say, we're selling. We're right near Newark. This is a good idea. People get off the airplanes, go to the airport. They'll stop at Elizabeth and buy some marijuana. They're going to be collecting that 2%. Uh, and other towns have said, hey, you know, everyone's going to have it. Why don't we get our share? But if you just buy it from the illegal guys, you don't have to pay any of the percentage. And that's why it's possible that these businesses won't make money. Uh, So we're just going to keep our eye on this. And you're right. It could be a business opportunity. I feel like I have seen in the news where in other places where it's legal, it... The proprietors don't make money. Yeah. uh, Because of the uh, taxes and the competition from those who don't pay taxes. But we will uh, find out. It could change it. You think it's not going to change things. I think... Once the state puts an imprimatur on something and says it's okay, you're going to see a lot more marijuana use out in the open. Even though I know you've told it's me... It's going to change lifestyle. Use, yes. I think you're going to see it more. Okay. Okay? You know, we'll have to call back our, our guest, Pam Borg. Yeah, yes. Who came here several years ago. Well, when, the, the, you better finish the thought because they're going to... When, when she, no, she's a nurse uh, who specializes... Well, she knew about medical marijuana dispensaries. No, she was talking to us about it. It was on the verge of New Jersey oh, right. uh, legalizing oh, really? it. She and say? she was talking about it changes how things work in um, emergency rooms. Yeah. Yeah, because people come in and they don't communicate so clearly. I mean, she also made the point that, if I recall correctly, that uh, the marijuana sold by these dispensaries is much stronger than the kind you normally get on the street. All right. All right now we're getting oh. out of my depth. Let's okay. just move on. We can talk okay. about right, plants. Plant. I don't know about plants either, but... Well, fake it. Um, right. And so, 
There was an article in the New York Times about the next it plant. Yeah. It says, forget about the fiddlehead fern. You probably don't know what a fiddlehead no, fern I don't. is. I'd but say, say everybody has it. one. Lisa Walsh has a beautiful one. You know? I, I don't doubt Lots it. of people have them. And I happen not to have, uh, not a fiddlehead fern. Uh, okay. Fiddle leaf fig yeah. is, is no longer the thing. Yeah, it's okay. forgotten. Everybody forgot had a fiddle already. leaf fig. You forgot it, so it's forgotten. <laughs> I knew it was a fiddle. So what's the um, new plant here? And, well, it might be the geo. But here, here's what happens. If, if people got into plants, into plant, you know, and it's another one of those pandemic things. During uh, um, during the pandemic, people spent $1.67 billion dollars yeah. uh, in two, two, 2020, um, an increase of 28% from 2019 on plants. Okay. And uh, the deal is that a plant would become the it plant. And everybody had to have one, and they would bid them up like crazy, all right? But this is the thing. Um, you know, plants start out, they're hard to get, there's not many of them, and then the big plant uh, nurseries, you know, manage to propagate them and put zillions out there so that what some people paid for $400 for uh, a year ago is now available at any Home Depot for nineteen ninety nine, mm. uh, which is upsetting. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, this will still be happening. And uh, there's a story in the Times about Mister Rim, Rimode Rimland, who uh, is a plant hunter, and he goes all over the world, uh, especially to tropical areas, uh, searching for the next cool plant. Something that will look good indoors, survive, um, and, you know, uh, the conditions of American indoor homes, etc. and so forth. And then he takes it, he works for Costa, you know, one of these huge Costa Farms, the largest houseplant growers in uh, North America. Mm -hmm. And uh, they test it and develop it and, uh, you know, start growing them. And so... uh, Four years ago, he brought them a plant called the Geogenanthus ciliatus, also known as the geo, which has these great glossy purple and green leaves. So you may see that see that soon. Okay. But you know, hold out if you're thinking you're gonna buy it uh, online. You know, for six hundred dollars, um, just wait. I'm, wait. I'm, I'm, Soon it will be at a store near I'll you. Restrain myself. Does that sound you shocking that uh, people spend four hundred dollars? Yeah, for a, yeah, a house plant sounds impossible. But yeah, I'll take your word for it. Because I I pretty much go by the um, you know the goldfish rule. It says like I, when I when I'm in uh, you know. I buy most of my house plants in like the giant food store mm-hmm. or the Home Depot, and they look like they're about to die, but they're an interesting plant. Mm-hmm. Like I have a monstera, the split leaf uh, philodendron, that's uh, kind of cool. But it was just about to die, and it was being sold, uh, you know, for like um, two ninety nine, two dollars mm-hmm. ninety nine cents, just to get it out of the way, and. Um, and, you know, the goldfish rule is, you know, it can stay there in the Woolworths, in the tank. And if I don't buy it, it's probably going to die in two weeks. If I take it home and it dies in two weeks, I don't feel so bad. It was probably going to die anyway. So I, I buy right. the um, interesting but uh, about-to-die inexpensive plants. Mm-hmm. And if they grow, good. All right. Um, that's fine. That program strikes me as fine. Okay. 
Take a look. I have got some interesting plants. All right. I've got I... some duds, too. Right. And the problem is when you have a dud, when you have a not very attractive plant that you can't bear to put out of its misery. Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is going completely over my head. You're looking at me as if I'm... And yet the plants are all over your house, Dave. You must have walked by them. I, I walked by them. You I, must have noticed you them. You know, I can't, I can't really absorb everything that's going on in this house, Dempsey. Okay. okay. Right. Well, you're, you're as healthy as you are today because we have so many plants. Okay. Right. They, they give off the uh, oxygen. All right. They suck up the carbon monoxide, I think, or something like that. I don't know. Okay. Um, all right. Moving right along here, uh, another article about biking. People yeah. are biking. Mm-hmm. And now do you know what, which people are biking? Parents are biking. Yeah. Because uh, in the city, they didn't want to take their kids uh, on the public, or they couldn't even on public uh, subway, etc., to go to daycare. Mm-hmm. During the pandemic and mm-hmm. so on, uh, so they started uh, putting them on the back of a bike, and people have gotten e-bikes. That makes it a little bit easier. Um, well, that's the so, whole thing, obviously. If you can, if you have an e-bike, you can put the kids on the back. You don't worry about taking the load, right? Right. Okay. It's uh, like you know driving but, a primitive you know, motor scooter. It's still, but it's a little safety issue. Yes, there's a big safety issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, deaths by on bicycles has gone way up. Yeah. Uh, since the pandemic started and uh, there's been and you know it's not clear uh, how how to solve that problem but it, the article's funny in the New York Times because it does mention that in Amsterdam they had terrible safety problems on bikes and then the parents just rose up yeah and and uh, and they literally said that uh, because uh, you know parents, in the seven, 1970s, parents in the Netherlands protesting children killed by cars helped Amsterdam, helped transform Amsterdam into one of the world's most bike-friendly cities. Having more parents as cyclists helps the movement develop safer biking infrastructure. Mm. Yeah, no, I think so, that's true. And we've been in Amsterdam. There's only one problem with that. New York City is not Amsterdam. Uh, it is a much bigger, much just, more urban environment well it's not just a matter of protesting or yeah no it's people acknowledging but it's a much bigger challenge to to sort of transform new york city into a car friendly environment to a bike friendly environment but meanwhile these e-bike people are designing bikes that can hold sure passengers i I don't really see as a huge departure you've got the power i mean what's the big deal yeah you just got to put something excuse me something in the back yeah when we were in amsterdam we saw mothers just load up and these were not e-bikes yeah and, well, the best and point, I say mothers is because most of what we saw transporting the children were the mothers. Yeah, I mean, e- it, even when we would see a whole family out for right. dinner, yeah. dad would get on his bike. Yeah. You know, the uh, preteens would get on their bikes, and mom would get on a bike with like the toddlers. Mom would be wearing a skirt and getting yes, on the bike. Yes, in a skirt and yeah. heels. Yeah, in a skirt and heels, and with the kids sort of you know very precariously balanced in the back of the bike, and they'd casually yeah, ride they all were around. happy as clams. Yes, they were. Um, okay, so here's something that's come back that I know you missed, which is the USFL, the United States Football League, which existed some years ago, uh, went out of business pretty quickly. That's I think uh, that's the one Donald Trump had, a, had the generals in. That's the name of the team. and uh, But that's neither here nor there. They didn't quite make it. There's, there's always, it seems there's always a fledgling league that's trying to, uh, you know, not compete with the NFL, but at least uh, get on the air in the time that the NFL is not on the air, which is called the spring and summer. Uh, so now the USFL, against all odds, is back. 
and I won't dwell on this because I don't know how long they're going to be around. But number one, the headline, it is professional football on television. You could have tuned into it Saturday night. Believe it or not, uh, the game they had on Saturday night was on Fox and NBC simultaneously. In other no, words, that's not even possible. I'm telling you, this is the New no. York Times, the Gray Lady, the paper of record. It was on Saturday night at 7.30 p.m. Fox is an investor in the league, and they actually showed the game on two networks simultaneously with different announcer feeds, the same pictures. Well, is this all driven by betting? I, I'm sure that contributes to it. That's a good point. It's probably driven by betting. But here's the clincher about this. This is the great part. The uh, the teams are New Jersey, Philadelphia, Tampa Bay, Michigan, Michigan Panthers, Houston Gamblers, Birmingham Stallions, New Orleans Breakers, and Pittsburgh Maulers. However, all 40 regular season games will be played in Birmingham, Alabama. In other words, notwithstanding that list of cities I just gave you, they're playing every league game in Alabama. Is this a weather thing? No. It's a save money on travel thing. Oh, okay. Is that unbelievable that you have teams with, that have these city names, but they never go to the cities? So this is all about broadcasting stuff, not about people. You know, you're probably right. You're probably right. They asked, the, the, you know, Daryl Johnson, who you've seen broadcast some games, is the executive vice president and former player for the Cowboys. He said, it's all money. Uh, the league hoped to move the teams that are not to their nominal, that's the Times word, home cities, somewhere between the second and fourth seasons. And again, final point, this is the economics. Each player gets $4,500 a week. Practice players get $1,500 a week. And each, if your team wins a game, each player gets an additional $850. dollars mm-hmm. So, obviously, the financial stakes are somewhat different than the NFL. But that said, each player on each team has what I would call a mighty incentive to win any particular game. Right. So, there you go. Something to tune into next weekend. Right. (laughs) Okay. um, Orange and Noble. Once cast as a villain... Barnes and Noble turns the page. It's an article in the New York Times um, stating that many independent booksellers now see the chain as an ally. Yeah, you know, I actually Amazon. read the article. I don't really think the article says that, but the article says mostly that Barnes and Noble and the other independent bookstores have a common bookstore. En- bookstore, sorry, have a common enemy, and that common enemy is Amazon. Okay, right. Uh, so they they have a similar agenda, and they broadly might support various initiatives. Uh, and of course, what they're fighting is the notion that people just order their books on Amazon more cheaply than they might uh, pay for a book if they visit a national bookstore, including Barnes and Noble. Uh, but the, the big loss, according to these folks, to the book industry as a whole, uh, if one were to not have the Barnes and Nobles and the other independent bookstores is that people wouldn't browse and buy, right? Right. You don't have that just uh, happening upon a book, you know, just noticing the cover or, you know, or you're just going through a whole shelf and picking out one at random. The online sellers haven't been able to really replicate that experience. Uh, Meanwhile, they're selling, uh, you know, a ton of books. That's true online. 
but anyway, and uh, so getting back, I thought, I really thought, uh, and they mentioned this, a lot of people thought Barnes & Noble was just going to go well, out of true. business. Right. I mean, the stores were looking kind of shabby. And I think some in this area might have closed. I yes, feel they like did. there are fewer. Yeah. And uh, they definitely went from, you know, we have uh, one mall where Barnes & Noble went from a very big space to a, smaller to a much space. smaller yeah. space and uh, really cut down on the types of items they were selling. Now, you remember they used to have a big oh, uh, yeah. CD section. And, of course, nobody's buying CDs and anymore. And it was a, so a destination. Gone. We went there. We would spend right. an afternoon with our kids. We were delighted to be in the bookstore. And they were closed during uh, the pandemic, a right. lot of the pandemic. And uh, the cafes that they had, and cafes in the Barnes & Noble used to always be crowded. Sure. You know? Well, they might and, still be. Uh, no, they've been they pretty empty. Really? They, they say they're beginning to bounce back. <coughs> right. But anyway, um, how did they do this? They did this in part... Um, by hiring a new head, James Daunt, uh, from London, mm-hmm. and uh, he had done he had uh, revived a uh, chain in uh, England, and the way the way he did it, and he's you know he had owned his own bookstore, uh, was basically by treating the individual, trying to help the uh, individual stores. Mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble stores behave as independent bookstores. Right, the decentralized okay. management, and uh, that seems to have really brought back uh, some personality. Has enabled people to the books, you know, the um, stores uh, stocking the shelves with uh, 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 titles that work mm-hmm. for the area that they. Uh, um, see people buying there. Mm-hmm. They also slimmed down in terms of all their accelerary mm-hmm. ancillary stuff. Um, right. Stuff like, you know, uh, batteries and this, that, and other nonsense. And they just, you know, kind of honed down to more. Uh, um, yeah, they also stopped promoting book books that weren't really popular. They used to take cash payments to set up displays for books because they got the cash payments, but the books weren't selling. And they ended up having to ship them back, and they had to pay for the shipping to ship them back. Right. And it also took up space yeah. in the store right. away from books that might really sell. Right. So they just, uh, you know, uh, so that's interesting that um, that uh, by behaving more like a small independent bookstore, they're, they may be helping to save yeah. the other bookstores. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, it really... Are you in? Are you amazed that uh, ebooks have not caught on anymore? Well, they have. They they gave a percentage. I forget what it is. And look, ebooks are ebooks, and I use ebooks, and I am amazed people buy books as often as they do. If I want a book, and I often do, to me, it's an automatic ebook. But you know, people. Some people like to have the hardcover. I think you do. I think you like the book. I well, I like both mm-hmm. because if I'm just uh, you know whipping through. My random crime detective novel things. Yeah. You know, I don't need to own that book, that right. physical book. Right. But it was um, a delight for me mm. to watch this Julia Child show and then say, wait a minute, I have those books about her. Let yeah. me find them yeah. and let me look at those mm. uh, pictures. Mm. And also, there was an article this week about um, a book uh, about uh, Florence by Mary McCarthy, Stones of Florence. And uh, I have that. Mm-hmm. And, and it is sort of a coffee table book, and it's one you enjoy owning. Mm-hmm. So I have to say, I still 
love the physical aspect of the physical book. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there, well, are t- there are times when that's just you know, but, irreplaceable. But what I liked about the article, frankly, was that phenomenon that we talked about at the beginning, which I always had a notional sense of, which is that, gee, when you walk around a bookstore, you see other things. But I never really uh, re- confirmed in my own mind that it's that widespread a feeling, that it's that meaningful sentiment. But they're saying it is, and it's important for retail. Everybody has that. Uh, that that, that yeah. that's, that's a real phenomenon. When people yeah. walk around a bookstore and their eyes uh, are set upon other things they weren't necessarily focused on, they're interested in other things, it widens their horizons, and they buy other books. It's a real thing. When that's I, what I thought was interesting. When I buy a book online, yeah. I am looking for that, that book. book. And you I'm see, looking for right, that right, author, right. or Amazon is suggesting, because of what I've read before, I might want to look at this. Yeah. But uh, some not of my same. greatest finds yeah. have been... You know, you're not even thinking about it. And then you just, something catches your eye. In a bookstore, yeah. uh, A title, a name, a right. picture. And, uh, you know. Well, that's true. I mean, that, there's no substitute for that online. Okay, so uh, there was just an interesting article about a fellow who set the record. I know you're focused on this record. For the most loops around Central Park over a 24-hour period. This is running. This is ultra-marathoning. Well, is this like literally, is this one of the big... Like on the road that goes... This is the six-mile loop around Central loop. Park. Okay, yeah. within the park. Within the park. Not just going on the sidewalk around the right. park. Right, no. Okay. And, uh, you know, why anyone keeps this a record, I don't know. Uh, and this was no event. This is a fellow who just, you know, planned a day that he was going to try to break the existing record. Uh, turns out that the if you are running in, in Central Park, you have to do the running between 6 a.m. and... Uh, I forget whatever it's 11 or it's uh, 1, but it clo- at 1 a.m. So the park is closed between 1 and 6 a.m. So he's is not going to really run. true? It's, again, New York Times says it's true. And so he's uh, running during that period. And, um, you know, it's it's the disaster you would think it is. I mean, obviously, you, you feel like you could kill yourself by running every moment over that long a period. Uh, and he's kind of a nutty guy. But what's interesting to me, and he's break the record, by the way, uh, is that he's a mentalist, right? Uh, you know, his name is Oz Perlman, but he goes by Oz the Mentalist. And um, he's been on, he's finished, they say, you know, he placed in America's Got Talent in 2015. He's been on the Today Show. He's been on Ellen. You know, he's been on all kinds of shows. What's a mentalist? Mentalist is like the great Kreskin. So he comes oh, he into can, a room he and knows he knows what's in your pocket. Exactly, he knows what's in your pocket. Uh, so and, what? So how does that help him while he's running? Well, uh, the theory is. First of all, this the you know what so to people be people run by and he said, "Hey, guy." No, nobody's running by. No. I mean, somebody's helping him here once in a while to pace him. But he says mentalism helps my running. If I can get inside your brain, I can get inside my own brain when I'm suffering, and dig deep and keep running. Look, the whole the oh, idea that's about, so complicated. Yes, the idea that the guy can run for twenty hours straight or eighteen or nineteen hours straight—it's uh, obviously at least as What's much mental as it is physical. I, what there he made nineteen laps around the 19, 19 loops, nineteen times six. Okay, okay. Uh, you can do that, right? No, hundred fourteen million years. Hundred fourteen. Oh, no, no, you can multiply. do it. You multiply. Do the math. I, yeah, you have trouble with that too, probably. But my point is this. My point is. That it obviously is largely a mental exercise, and um, listen, aren't we already in our brains? 
Uh, yes, but he he's in other people's brains. He's 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 better able to deal with his own brain. Uh, look, what can I tell you? I I thought it might be an advantage to be a mentalist, and I was right. I would have bet on this guy. He's a mentalist, and uh, there you go. I thought people like physical exercise because it makes you get out of your brain. Yeah. Well, look, you really it makes you forget everything. This is too fine an analysis. The point is, he managed to use it to his advantage. O's. They said at a certain point, you know, the guy's writing the article. Is he like on in Vegas or something? No, no, no. He's not that successful. The guy who's writing the article was running with him at some point to talk to him. He said, "Well, tell me more about being a mentalist." And he says, "All right, let me give an example." And he says, uh, I want you to think about the name of the first woman you had a crush on. And he said, uh, we, they went had this conversation, and before uh, I knew it, he was telling me, okay, the woman's name is blank. And I'm telling you, I didn't give her a name. And he said, look, what I'm doing is I'm planting the thought in your head. I can't quite explain it while I'm running, but there's a way to do it. And he said, that was during mile 80. That was in the 80th mile he was able to do it. So he can do it pretty easily. There's a trick to being a mentalist. You know, we were talking the other day that the great Kreskin appeared at, uh, at this local uh, venue recently. Yeah. He's still working. Guy bends spoons with his mind. And he's 88 years old or something like that. You know, if you've got that ability, you can do uh, it. Yeah, I don't know how it works. Yeah, that's that's why, that's why these guys succeed, because you don't know how it works. I don't know either. All right, so in the Wall Street Journal, you know, I often uh, talk about the Masterpiece article in the Weekend Wall Street Journal... This week it's by, about a painting by Nicolas Poussin, painted around uh, 1634, called A Dance to the Music of Time. Okay, so <laughs> I know you're very excited. You know, now that I'm looking at it, I don't really want to talk about it, but if Fine, you want but me to, no, I can. No, uh, you don't no, have I, to. No, but I should just mention that. Anyway, it's a good article because it really does, it is one of these examples where it really... It, it does a pretty good job describing exactly what's going on in this painting, and it's a classical subject matter. So, you know, it's got Apollo, it's, you know, it's got um, uh, some uh, allegorical figures, etc. you know, pleasure and uh, wealth, and, you know, so, yeah, I mean, labor, poverty. Uh, so you might want to look at it. Um, but um, uh, anyway... Uh, <laughs> Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> no, I just I should mention that uh, for those who are keeping score yeah. right now, there is actually a um, exhibition out at the Getty right. about Poussin and Los dance. Angeles? Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it's going to be on, you know, for a few more months, so uh, people could run out there and see it. We're gonna be like. we're gonna be out there. We uh, can do but, it. You know, it's neoclassical. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, you know. Figures dancing in a circle mm-hmm. based on a famous uh, marble relief called the Borghese Dancers. Mm-hmm. Oh, and don't, if you... <laughs> don't get started on it. <laughs> no, I just have to mention that. <laughs> it, it, these women dancing in a circle mm-hmm. you know, would inspire uh, artists for years to come, including Matisse does women dancing in a circle. He and Poussin looking at that same Borghese Dancers. And, and the they were called the Borg. This is like the June Taylor dancers in the Jackie Gleason show. The, uh, no, the Borghese dancers. family owned this uh, fragment of ancient marble, of an ancient oh. marble relief. And so it's that's, that's it, just his dancing. name. Yeah. It wasn't a bunch of, it's actually in of the women Louvre. dancing. It's in the Louvre uh, okay. now, but we still call it the Borghese. Oh, we, uh, yes. We. <laughs> 
I'm still impressed. I knew the Getty was in L.A. I thought that he gets credit for that. Yeah, so we, I mean, we're going out to L.A. Well, we, we, could, well, we, could, we could go see this. We uh, could. Poussin, you know, is a pretty famous artist. I know you wanted to say something about wastewater. <laughs> How many times have we discussed wastewater as see, the way I'm, to I'm figure so out? I'm so exhausted. I can't even fight you on the, uh, sticking up. For How the many arts. times have we discussed that wastewater is the way? Yeah, to there's not much to say here except there's an article in the New York Times. Where the headline is: Are there better ways to track virus cases as the blind spots grow? And the, and the article is, goes through much detail about you know reporting is getting worse and worse because now people test right. at home right. and blah blah blah. And they you know and then and what is the one way? To figure all this out, wastewater. Analyze and, the wastewater and the municipality. So, which we've said a year ago. I mean, we've been talking about is, it is once no one, a month. Is no one in the government listening to us? Is the CDC not tuned in? I think that's what what we've learned. Wastewater so, right. tells you everything. All right. So now let's get to what matters in, in today's podcast: the notion of how you uh, deal with. Uh, Stuff on the on the sidewalk that you might pick up and add to your collection of furniture, and then what you do with clutter, generally speaking. So let's start with point one. <laughs> well, clutter is. I was talking to my friend Roberta about um, you know decluttering. Yeah. And uh, she said at one point her husband George was a little depressed about uh, all the uh, furniture they had that you know they had collected broken pieces of Victorian furniture with the idea that they will refurbish it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess sell it or whatever and uh he said you know i'm just so sorry we haven't gotten to that and she said look george it came out of a dumpster it can go back in the dumpster okay which i thought was a great attitude well that's what this article is about if you see something grab something yeah and it's all about you know uh, mainly in um i guess it's talking about new york city and they're called stupors people who you know uh Collect furniture off the, you know, off the sidewalk. Oh, they have a name. The, yes, yes. I mean, there are Daniel. There are, um, you know, uh, oh, websites, TikToks. You know, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, all kinds of specialists in this. I, all I know is you drive by once in a while, you see a piece of furniture on the curb. Yeah. Now here's the thing. Yeah. You got to know when the trash is being picked up. In New York, you can put bulk items. Out on the sidewalk, uh, you know, like after 4 p.m., from 4 p.m. to midnight, the night before the trash right, pickup right, is supposed right, to be. Right. All right. So the Kanyashenti are out there, yeah. you know, um, the in that window yeah. Yeah. Uh, picking up. Can that I ask stuff. you a question that matters here? Yeah. Okay. When should you take a piece of furniture home and when should you not? Well, some of these people are professionals. Okay. Yeah, they can that. identify something that's good. They yeah. said uh, one of the things to look for is if it's heavy. Yeah. Right. You want something heavy. It's and something that's not wobbly. Okay. But heavier means it's pretty good. And they said you know, and you got to be careful. You don't want the uh, Target knockoff right. of a lamp. You want the original <laughs> lamp. You mm-hmm. know. And um, uh, this uh, one woman uh, they interview. Uh, whose name is Denise Gordon, she says, people don't know what they're throwing away. In my neighborhood, they don't care. They don't know and they don't care. She's from Gramercy Park. She's in Gramercy Park. That's a pretty Tony area that you can get some nice stuff, okay? And um, she actually ended up picking up a dresser, okay? It was too heavy for her to carry. Right. Like 
ball and claw feet, etc. Yeah. It was a really nice dresser. So she paid two guys 20 bucks each in cash. She just grabbed guys off the street and got them to carry it to her mm-hmm. house. She sold it for $2,000. Wow. All right. Um, no, maybe not that piece. No, she sold a, um, she sold something else. She sold an Ames lounge chair. Yeah, well, she picked off the set for two thousand. Even I would recognize the name. Yeah. yeah. So you know, um, and uh, you know, so they have advice about uh, what to pick up. They have also advice about etiquette. You know, somebody else is looking at it first. Mm-hmm. Give them their chance. You know, and if somebody else seems to really want it, maybe you step back and let them have it. You know, someday you may need the same kind of favor. You carry a screwdriver in your um, backpack or tote bag in case you need to take something apart to mm-hmm. transport right. it more easily. Right. Uh, and um, a tape measure is always good. So then, you know, if you can get it into the place you want, if, you know, if it, it, uh, some of these people are, are, have an eye to resell the stuff. And um, some of these people, you know, are taking it home to use. Now, uh, Granger, our son, has carried some rather large pieces of furniture home, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as he's been walking through Denville. Uh, an armchair at one point. Yeah, he's done all right. Yeah, he's, he's done all right. They say also the thing to use is um, Google Lens. I don't even know what that is. Um, it will, that your phone can look at the object yeah. and then pull up, uh, you know, other pictures, articles about the same thing. Really? And you can, you know, you can, it'll have, you know, if it's pulling up things from, uh, Places where it's for sale, you'll see what it's selling for. Mm-hmm. It's stuff like that. Google Lens. Okay. All, right. All right. So, the you know, this is kind of a happy story. That right. There are great things out there right. on the side of the street, right. you know, and uh, you could get them and you could sell them. Yeah. So here's, then here's the problem. For everybody. some of us, we have no, we're not good at the selling them part. Right. Okay. And, it just, and we end up with lots of stuff. Clutter. Now, in clutter. the New York Times this week, you came across... Uh, a lot of letters to the editor. Yeah. Okay. About decluttering. Mm-hmm. Not only did you see this, but when I was in the dentist chair during the week, yeah. the dentist mentioned it. I don't know why people look at me and think about clutter. Yeah. That's a little upsetting, actually. Uh, but uh, you must listen I mean, to the podcast. He's never been to my house. He's, he's probably, never been to my house. You must listen to the podcast. Um, but anyway, and so he was telling me about uh, some of the letters, and we thought we would read a few. Well, we can't read a whole letter, but you know there are several. Yeah, why don't you just read what you think is interesting? Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, just to put it in perspective, there there are happy letters, there are sad letters, these are serious there are angry letters. letters yeah, you know. but this is a, an issue, and it's an issue which is tied up with a lot of emotion because it has to do sometimes with people's own things, but also generational issues. I mean, what what to do with your parents' belongings and what your kids might do with your belongings, and it gets very emotional. So here's a letter from Graham Hawks in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I never had a good relationship with my mother. As one of her primary caretakers, I dreaded the end of her life. It meant reckoning with the past as I cleaned out her belongings from our family home of 62 years. Sound familiar? Yes, exactly my The last few months of her life, I went through her private belongings. Among her papers, I found nine typed pages by my teachers 
reviewing my years in nursery and kindergarten, words that my mother clearly held close to her heart. I found pieces of artwork I had made for her that I thought were unappreciated and destroyed. By the time she died of dementia in her home, I had received the grace to grieve her loss in a way I thought unimaginable. Disposing of her physical belongings gave me the gift of realizing a love she had for me I never knew existed. Yeah. Well, that's a good story. I mean, they're not all that positive, right? Okay, so here's a story that I think is a fake. Okay, go ahead. I think somebody is just writing this to be cranky. Okay. Okay? And here it is. To the editor from Dana Wickware, Clinton, Connecticut. I'm 88, living on borrowed time, and I ain't planning to dispose of even 15-year-old copies of The New Yorker. Why should I spend any of my few remaining days, months, or years culling the detritus of my long life? Surely I have better, more meaningful ways to spend my end of days. Isn't it enough that my children will receive whatever is left? Gosh! There's some pretty good stuff in that mess. And isn't it possible that inching their way through it will prove an interesting and rewarding treasure hunt? And more seriously, won't this exercise tell them things about me that can't be learned in any other way, adding mortar to their memory, perhaps even their regard for me? Mortar? Mortar. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's not. No, nah, nobody writes that. This person is bitter. All right, guys, give us another one. Um, well, there's another one. I, I don't know if I want to read the whole story. It, it uh, tells about the people who are getting ready to downsize, yeah. and they invited their children over to the house to take yeah. whatever they want, and it was kind of fun. They laughed, told stories. Right. People took stuff. The whole process was rewarding and freeing. But sadly, no one wanted the heirloom china, glassware, or silver. Those treasures and other unwanted items went into the estate sale. And at the end of our great disposal of 2,800 square feet of lifelong keepsakes, we had two carry-on suitcases for departure and a small trash bag for the garbage man. Well, that's the story, generally. That's the way that goes. Right? Right. Right. And then there was another very touching one about uh, a woman who found her mother's diaries. Yeah. I mean, that one was interesting because she thought it was a moral issue. Uh, You know, should she look at the diaries? Was that private? Was that meant for her? And she decided to read the diaries and she was Well, she kept the diaries and she's kind of parsing them out. She's she's reading them. Reading them over time. A little bit of time. It is is enhanced her regard for her mother and her, her closeness to her mother. Didn't have to be that way. I not only feel closer to her through my wor- through her words, but my understanding of her yeah. has grown beyond them. Her precious time capsule continues to reveal her, as many treasured entries remain unread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, it was a you know a pretty uh, a touching group of letters. Well, but it just reflects on the experience. Like I'll, we'll say this for next time. I have a theory as to how to handle the decluttering. We'll discuss it. But uh, it is an emotional thing. I mean, just because you're dealing with the various generations. If it was just ourselves, uh, it would be uh, simpler. Daniel Mark Abuhoff. What? 
I have been slaving over this decluttering, and now you're going to announce to the world you have an idea of how to do it? That's, that's an apt summary, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Next week, this I'll is Tamson Granger. Dan Abuhoff. We'll see you next week. Maybe. Maybe. With Tamson Dan, read the paper.